0: Sponsored by Expressway. With MyExpressway, free travel pass holders can reserve their seats online at expressway.ie or at our ticket machines in stations.
1: Hello and welcome to Irish GenPod. My name is Paul Gorry, and during the series, I'm chatting with people who are involved in various ways in Irish genealogy. I'm in County Waterford to meet someone I've known for over 40 years. Julian Walton is a renowned genealogist who has contributed greatly to the field. In 2021, he was the recipient of the Wallace Clare Award. Hello, Julian, and thank you very much for talking to me. Lovely to meet you again. Thank you very much for having me, Paul. Great to see you. The Wallace Clare Award. People, Hopefully there are people abroad listening to this as well, uh, but they might not know what the Wallace Clare Award is. It was started in 2020 by the Irish Genealogical Research Society, which we call the IGRS, and it's for um, basically lifetime achievement, I suppose, people who have contributed greatly to Irish genealogy worldwide The first year, there were four recipients from various uh, places around the world. And thereafter, it's being presented to one person each year. So in the second year, Julian was the uh, recipient. Um, I suppose you could tell us why it's called the Wallace Clare Award. It's named from Father Wallace Clare, who was
0: an English priest of Irish descent who established the Irish Genealogical Research Society um, in London in the 1930s. And he died in 1963, which really was before I became involved with the society, so I never met him. But I, my, my, my genealogical Bible in the early stages was his simple guide to Irish genealogy. As revised... In
1: 1966, I think later by Rosemary Foliot. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, uh, it, it was really the first guidebook on it Irish was, genealogy. There was nothing
0: before then. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Interesting, though, how genealogy has changed down
0: the years. Um, on the um, cover of Wallace Clare's Irish Genealogy Guidebook was a, a picture, and it showed a man, a gentleman, in his library. <laughs> Uh, with two children, a little boy and a little girl, at his knees and he was expounding to them their genealogy. Um, genealogy is mainly for men and it's for gentlemen of property. Now we realise, of course, genealogy is for everybody
1: and how that has changed and I think it's a good job too. Oh absolutely, yes. Um, you've had a long association with genealogy, uh, how did you get involved in the first place? Um, That's a very difficult question to answer because I've
0: always been interested in genealogy. As a small boy, I was compiling genealogical trees um, and I was sent to boarding school in England so we had to learn all about the kings and queens and I was drawing family trees of them. And I got interested in ancient Egypt and I was drawing up family (laughs) trees of pharaohs and God knows what else. And then in my teens, I got the project of writing a book on the castles of County Waterford. And of course, that brought me into the family histories of local families, mostly ancient ones, Powers, Fitzgeralds, and so on. And in in this project, I wouldn't really have got anywhere at all had it not been for the help of several people. Uh, One was Father T.J. Welsh of Cork, And the other was Basil O'Connell. Oh, yes. You remember Basil? I I don't remember Basil O'Connell, but I know his name. Yes. Um, Basil was actually a retired police officer, and policing and genealogy go very well together. (laughs) Um, And he worked in a rather informal capacity, so far as I could see, for the genealogical office and for the National Library. Mm -hmm. But he had compiled a vast, what we would call a database nowadays, of monster families of the 18th century. He was a great character, and he gave me enormous encouragement, opened doors to me, brought me to the National Library, to the genealogical office,
1: and he was my first real mentor, to whom I owe a great deal. That's interesting. I, I didn't know that you knew him. Mm-hmm, yeah, yeah. I, I know him uh, through the history of of the genealogical office. Yes. You know, he was. I worked for the genealogical I, office I myself, remember, yeah. and um, he was long gone at that stage. Mm-hmm. But people like Rosemary Folliot were still there. And um, yes, yeah, that's <laughs> yeah. Basil always said
0: you should never get emotionally involved with your clients. <laughs> and what did he do? He fell in love with an American lady for whom he was doing genealogical research, went off to America, married her, and was never seen again.
1: Alas, <laughs> mm, that's a, an interesting mm. um, yeah, and a his, development for yeah, genealogy. All his papers are now <laughs> in a US archive somewhere,
0: right, University of Alabama or somewhere.
1: Hmm. Um, when did you first join the Irish, the IGRS, but well, we better say the Irish Genealogical Research Society for a while anyway? Yeah. The person who brought
0: me into the society was my step-cousin, if there is such a thing, Colonel Hubert Galway. Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. And you remember Hubert. I do. Um, Hubert had been involved and in, interested in genealogy for many, many years. He was a serving officer during the war. He was a prisoner of war. And then afterwards, he remained a professional soldier. And it wasn't really until he retired from the army in 1959 and came back to County Waterford to live that I got to know him. He was a mind of information. Um, He had a sort of military approach to genealogy. You didn't get away with any nonsense. (laughs) Nothing was fake. He hated fakes, fake information and fake people. Mm and he drilled me thoroughly in genealogy. He took over the editorship of the Irish Genealogist and edited it very successfully until his sudden death in 1983. So it was through him that I became involved with the Society. Um, I found myself on the editorial committee. Mm -hmm. And while the Society was London-based and the Council was in London, meetings were held in London, Hubert felt, as did several other members who lived in Ireland, we should be having some meetings in Ireland. And he used to uh, bring together, quite informally, a group of members of the society who lived in Ireland, and we would have meetings in Dublin, which somebody would give a lecture and we'd then discuss it. And it was a
1: social occasion too, a way of meeting each other. Uh, Were they always held in Boswell's? They were generally held in Boswell's, mm-hmm, yes. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, well, when I first got involved in genealogy outside mm. of my own little brain, mm. um, it, Boswell's was where the IGRS, mm. um, it was sort of informal, it wasn't a, a branch as such. That's at that right, stage. yes, it was purely informal, <clears throat> but it was through
0: those meetings that I got to meet other people who had similar interests and who were able to give me an enormous amount of assistance as well as friendship down the years Um, one was uh, Nora O'Sullivan whose knowledge of um Irish families of the 16th 17th century and particularly the wild geese was unique um there was a strange young man who wandered around with his hair tied in a ponytail which was regarded askance in the early <laughs> 1970s, and this was Kenneth Nichols. Oh, yes. And Kenneth had a, a, a unique knowledge of Irish medieval families and sources. And it was through Kenneth and Hubert Galway that I got involved in research on the Marquess of Waterford's archives in Curramore. And we each had our own way of going about things. There were mountains of papers, a lot of medieval stuff, for instance, sort of chucked around the floor in an outbuilding in the courtyard. And um, I would sort them out and put them into neat little piles. Kenneth would riffle through them, finding some exciting document, and he would then... Um, disrupt all my meat piles <laughs> and sit there writing very rapidly in a script that only he could decipher. And Hubert would find one document that interested him and sit there transcribing it very carefully. <laughs> but it was through Kenneth and Hubert that I learned about um, documents and how to, how to read them and how to interpret them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So anyway, all that started with these informal meetings arranged by Hubert Galways in Boswell's hotel. Um, and they they were a social occasion. They m- enabled members of the society to come together who otherwise mightn't have ne- met each other at all.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, that was my first introduction to a group of genealogists. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Who sat it was Alita Dushek, who was That's working right. yes, for Alita, the... Yes, yeah. she was working for the... Um, for the genealogical office as well. And she sort of took me by the hand. I was uh, Mm. 19 at the time, Mm -hmm. I think. And uh, she introduced me to you and I I joined the society. Mm. And, you know, it was it it was wonderful to meet a whole group of people who were (laughs) who were were interested in genealogy, which is something I was doing on my own for quite a long Mm. time as a teenager before Mm. I worked for the GEO. what sort of activities did the IGRS uh, get, uh, apart from those meetings? I Ooh. think there were two a year. Was that it? That's it, was, right. it was individual otherwise. Mm-hmm. That, that's just, right, yeah. yes. And outside of the IGRS, what was happening in Irish genealogy when you started? Mm. Let me think. Well, um, you
0: had activities centered on the genealogical office. Gerard Slevin was uh, quite a, a motivator in, in, in that way. Um um, and there, were a, a, there was a small number of professional genealogists. You mentioned Rosemary Folliott, mm-hmm. who was um, perhaps the, the, the leading and certainly the most vibrant member of the group. Um, Eric McAuliffe, who became quite a friend of mine. Uh, Roy O'Kenny Lynch um, and several others. But apart from them, there was really very little
1: going on in Irish genealogy, I think, at the time. hmm hmm yeah, it was when uh, <laughs> Roots came on television in the 1970s, I think 1975 or something like that. Mm-hmm. And when I uh, got taken on as a freelance researcher by the genealogical office, um, they had a backlog of inquiries and it was all generated by mm-hmm. Roots. Before that, it was very, very um, sedate or whatever. Um, so. In the late seventies, it started. But even still, at that time, mm. it, it was uh, there wasn't an awful lot of activity mm. um, outside of the outside of the IGRS. It was yeah, the only the, society to join lengthy, at yes. that time. Then Rosemary founded the Irish Ancestor,
0: which was a mm-hmm. the um, magazine, sort of companion journal. journal, to to the Irish genealogist. Um, I think it's fair to say that it focused more on eighteenth, nineteenth century. Sources and families, particularly Munster-based and Protestant-based, whereas the Irish genealogist um, covered medieval stuff um, and source material and, and, and so on. But uh, that ran from what 1972 until 1986, when the recession more or less forced it out of business. Sponsored by Expressway. With MyExpressway, free travel pass holders can reserve their seats online at expressway.ie or at our ticket machines in
1: stations. Think you're not smart enough to own a smartphone? Well, think again and think Doro. Doro phones are designed specially with the older person in mind. They're easy to use with louder sound and larger text. Plus numerous state-of-the-art features that don't compromise on performance or quality. To learn more about the full range of high-tech Doro phones, visit doro.ie. Doro phones, make friends with innovation. If you're enjoying this podcast, why not subscribe to Senior Times? Visit the website at seniortimes.ie and like us on Facebook. The Irish Genealogist, which is the organ of the IGRS, Mm -hmm. um, it has been published since 1936. Mm -hmm. And you were on the editorial committee from 1970 to 2003, which is a long time. Mm -hmm. You were also editor for part of that time. Yes, that's right. It was um, quite a challenge.
0: Um, I suppose one of the jobs of a member of the editorial committee is to assess articles that are handed in or that are submitted for publication and there are really three types of article one you read it through and you say this is marvelous we can publish it more or less as it stands one you can look at it and say god this is absolutely hopeless <laughs> we, i'm sorry but we, we really couldn't but the difficult ones are in between they're the articles where you see The author is onto something, but there are sources maybe that he hasn't looked at, or she, um, or hasn't really understood some of the sources, um, is not a good writer. Mm. And there you've got to work with the author to bring it on so that it does become publishable. And um, that's the difficult part. It can be very time-consuming. I remember one article that we had which I, I thought was excellent in itself. Um, but I have to say, when I when I got the proofs of the article, I didn't really read through very carefully because I thought, this chap, he's, he's a bank manager. He knows about how to write English carefully. Mm-hmm. When the final proofs came through, I was horrified. <laughs> and I corrected every page red markings commas where there should be full stops full stops where there should be commas capitals and so on i brought it back to our printer who stared at it in horror and said mr walton this is not a proof this is a pepper pot (laughs) (laughs) they're the difficult ones (laughs) where you have to work with the author and with his his or her permission and try and make
1: the Brings the article up to the standard that you that you expect. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I, the, the Irish genealogist is a is a major, um, I suppose, the, the, the most important contribution that the IGRS has made to Irish genealogy mm. because it has that record of what eighty eighty plus years Ooh, at this stage, yeah. <clears throat> and quite a variety of articles too. Um, remember the beginners' page, which we did. Oh, yes. Which you did mainly. Yeah. Um, I, I remember that. I think maybe you, Kenneth Nichols as well. Yes. yes, Hubert started it, Hubert Galway, and then I took it over. So we would take
0: one type of record, it could be wills, it could be census records, directories, and somebody would write about them for the beginner what's available, how the records are to be interpreted, how to use them, and so on.
1: And I think it was one of the most valuable things mm. that we did, in mm-hmm. fact. Mm-hmm. Another thing I think that's shifted, I, I I think, I don't know whether it was an official thing, but uh, the Irish genealogists sort of stopped at about 1850. It mm. was pre-1850. Yes. Uh, that has been... Done away with now. It's, it, it has all sorts of more modern yes. uh, genealogy as well, mm. and as was more democratic, mm. really. Certainly, um, but that has changed mm. over the years. But naturally, I mean, a society that was formed in 1936 yeah. wouldn't be <laughs> mm. involving themselves in 20th century genealogy. Yeah. Another thing that you were um, heavily involved in was the uh, Tombstone Subcommittee of mm-hmm. the IGRS. Yeah, how did that come about?
0: Right. One of the major sources for Irish genealogy is the inscriptions on gravestones in graveyards and elsewhere. But they're extremely difficult to access, or they were then. And at a meeting, of the one of these informal meetings of the society, Gerard Slevin, the chief herald, pointed out the significance of tombstone inscriptions and suggested appointing a committee to see what work was being done throughout the country. Could we coordinate the work being different done, being done in different parts of the country, establish an archive maybe? So the committee was set up. Uh, Gerard chaired it and we used to have the meetings in his house. And Uh, I was on the committee. I acted as secretary. Uh, We had Eric McAuliffe, but above all, Brian Cantwell. Brian Cantwell, Brian had done phenomenal work in recording. Um, Wicklow, his cut-off date was 1880. Mm -hmm. And, well, you've got the the, the commencement of civil registration in 1864, births, marriages, deaths. So he reckoned by 1880, really, the burials at least the deaths, should all be recorded. Mm -hmm. Now, later we extended that to 1900. Um, He did every graveyard with pre-1880 inscriptions in County Wicklow, then moved on to County Wexford, did some in South County, Dublin. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I worked with Eric McAuliffe in the Dublin City area. Uh, We didn't just do graveyards, we did the inscriptions on coffin plates in the vaults of St Andrew's Church, <laughs> Westland Row.
1: It us both nightmares. <laughs> I wondered about that because, I yeah. mean, I, I've seen them in the Irish genealogist. Yes, but, um, I didn't even think such things existed.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. yeah. Um, Westland Row was a very
0: important um, Catholic church uh, in the 19th century, and some very important Catholic families were buried there, including the family of Sir Bernard Burke and his father Mm. uh, the creators of Burke's Land, the gentry and Burke's peerage Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Um, so I I think I can say I've got closer to Sir Bernard Burke and his family (laughs) than anybody else ever has living (laughs) Um, and we did the vaults under um, uh, the Adam and Eve church as well Mm -hmm. Um, and I was doing the inscriptions in East Waterford graveyards I started from where I was living and I covered all the old graveyards of East Waterford, typed it all up. Of course, there was other work going on in different parts of the country, notably um, Dr. Richard Clark in Ulster. His oh, yes. work was being published by the Ulster Historical Foundation. A group of indomitable old ladies in Kilkenny were recording wonderful graveyards there and other parts of the country as well. Um, and we tried to get copies of all the work that had been done for our archive which we did, we set it up and the only failure we had was with County Cork um, where so many graveyards, I mean a colossal amount of inscriptions had been copied by uh, Richard Henson, mm-hmm. but he was not going to hand um. over his material to any ar- I would
1: sooner burn them he said than hand them up to anything <laughs> in Dublin <laughs> <laughs> Well, I remember they were in a a cupboard in uh, the genealogical office when it it was back in Gildare Street, Mm. and um, I think when when the project came to publish them, Mm. um, they were dug out there, so I hope all of them were Mm. were there, that should have been. Yeah, I Mm -hmm. think so, so, yeah. So that was published in uh, 2000, Mm -hmm. sort of millennium project. Mm So, yeah, I have the two volumes at home, and right. uh, they're very, very valuable. Mm. And, of course, Brian Cantwell's material is not in that, but mm. it, it's unbelievable what that man did in yeah, Wicklow. And, single-handed. Yeah, single-handed. He would not work any, with anybody else. Yeah. yeah. Another thing,
0: too, that Brian did for me was, he, he gave a lecture on his work to us, and he had, oh, yes, in addition to Wicklow and Wexford, he'd worked in County Clare as well. He copied Mm -hmm. inscriptions there. And in both places, he was very taken with the decorative carving on the 18th century and 19th century gravestones. And it has never occurred to me to actually look at this stuff. I went straight for the inscription, took no notice of anything else. Mm -hmm. But I've since become very much interested in the decorative work done by local stone cutters Mm -hmm. in Wicklow. You have the most wonderful... um, Symbols of the crucifixion, carving of the crucifixion,
1: and so on. Um, Chris Corlett has actually published a, right. a volume on yes. that. Yes, yes, mm-hmm. I have it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Very useful. Yeah. A, a lot of people who are involved now in gravestone mm. uh, uh, transcription, mm-hmm. that is a major part of what they yeah. do. Mm. I, I w- I'd be like you, I'd be just going straight for the, for mm. the inscription.
0: Yeah.
1: Mm. But it's, it's so important because they are liable
0: to corrosion, the destruction, um, I was looking at a local graveyard, Clonagam, which is the graveyard of, of Caramore, the Marquis of Waterwoods parish, mm-hmm. and I had photographed some of the tombstones in the late 1970s, and the deterioration in the last 40 years or
1: so has been quite alarming.
0: Mm, So I think we mm. we
1: were doing a good job. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Mm. I I have to say, when um, the Irish Family History Foundation was formed, first of all, and they started indexing parish registers, I was thinking... I know the funding for it was, you know, it was easier to do parish registers than to do greystone inscriptions. But I really felt Mm. it would have been very valuable if they had done that Mm. then. Yeah. As you say, you know, 20, 30 years will make a huge difference to a a Mm greystone. Now, I just want to ask you about the establishment of the uh, Ireland branch of the IGRS in 1986, which I was involved at that stage. Mm. It was actually on the committee with you, but you were the chairman. Yeah. yeah. Why did that happen? I, was it something to do with a, a hike in the in the um, annual subscription or something like that, <laughs> and people decided, oh, we need more than this? Well, I'd forgotten
0: that element of it, I must say.
1: Um, the, these meetings were always summoned
0: by Hewitt Galway who presided at them not always chairing them we had Gerard Slevin we had um, uh, Dr MacLeis uh, mm. the New and of mm. Irish surname study um, but Hubert died very suddenly in 1983 and I was sort of landed with carrying on with this but a group of us felt we we, we needed a more formal structure for members living in Ireland because the society's base was in London so the branch was set up um, Dermot Blunden was very much involved. And, yes, um, I think secretary and, and possibly treasurer as well. And um, it it enabled us to summon regular meetings, go on outings to various places, um, expeditions to archives. I remember one to the the the, 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 the Jewish Museum and Archive in Dublin, mm-hmm, for mm-hmm. instance. Um, which was all very interesting, and it really expanded the work of the society. Um, I know the society has changed a a tremendous amount since those days, but I do remember going over to a council meeting in London in the, I would think, mid-'80s, perhaps. Mm -hmm. Um, It was held in a hotel, I think, and um, we had a very learned lecture about the origins of the human race And there was a discussion on that, the Marquis of Ormond presiding. And I felt this has got nothing to do with Irish genealogy at all. (laughs) And any other business came up, and I said, "Well, there's one thing I'd like to say that there's a a new project being started in Ireland, which is to use computers. You've heard of computers (laughs) for indexing parish registers, and it started in Tullamore, County Offaly." And there was a sort of pause, and the chairman said, well, I'm sure that's very interesting, but it's time we went and had tea. <laughs> <laughs> so that was that.
1: Anyway, that was then. Things have changed a lot since then. I had a similar experience with the IGRS. It was my first ever time mm. to go to, a, to one of the, the, the society's organize, um, meetings in mm. London. As opposed to the Ir- Ireland branch. And I remember asking, I can't remember what it was I asked, but I got that sort of, Yeah. what's that got to do with us type of thing. Yes, it was a different world. <laughs> it has changed greatly, yeah. yes. Mm. Um Now, available f- sources for Irish genealogy prior to the 19th century are fairly mm. scant, mm. Um, but that's a, peri- a period that you excel in pre-1800. Um, and you're known for your meticulous research and scholarly articles. And I think you mentioned about Hu- Hubert Galway as yes. one of your mentors yes. or whatever. Um, but how did you get so proficient in that, in that, in research in that mm. period? Uh, uh, to me, I have to say, mm. I'm very interested in that period, mm. but I, I, I shy away from anything beyond, say, um the the registry of deeds so so the early 18th century go into the 17th century and i'm lost Mm -hmm. i suppose it was because the families i was researching
0: really i I wasn't researching people's ancestors i was researching older families of the 16th and 17th centuries and tracing them down to Mm -hmm. the present day where possible hence the importance of Knowing about the 16th and 17th century sources, which are so very different. no parish registers, not in this country, mm-hmm. have them in England going back, mm-hmm. and, and continental Europe certainly. Um, and but what you do? It's it's mainly um, wars, rebellions, and confiscations that generate records. Um, so you, you've got the the civil surveys magnificent record of um who owned what in 1641 and what was on the land a books of survey and distribution what happened to the land who got it Mm -hmm. Um, down survey with the maps and then you've got records of um deaths Um, the government in dublin needed to know when a landowner or a person of property anyway died who was the heir? Because if the heir was a minor, they would take the land and very kindly look after it for him until he <laughs> came of age. But well, he had to try and claim it back. So, hence the inquisitions, inquisitions post mortem, um, which was, and they give very precise details of each uh, townland, and they tell you who died and when, and who was the heir, and the funeral entries. They yes. cover a very short period from what, 1560 to 1640 16, if you're lucky, um, but they are magnificent records because they tell you somebody dies, the heralds want to know um, about the funeral and they want to know who the family consisted of, so they give you all the details.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, um, but navigating your way through all of that, mm. uh, it, it's, it, uh, they're wonderful records, but mm. how to get through them and connect material, mm. um, you, you got straight into that. I mean, yeah. m- my earliest memory of, of uh, genealogical research was General Register Office, Parish Registers, mm-hmm. Griffiths Valuation, mm-hmm. 1901, census, 19... yeah. all the modern stuff. Yeah. You just jumped in at the deep end. Think, yeah, yes, <laughs> um, yes. You have to know
0: what sources are available, to understand why they were compiled, and how reliable they are. Uh, but I just found the whole thing fascinating. Um, of course, we were haunted by the spectre of 1922 mm-hmm. and the destruction of the Public Record Office, um, and the the, the hunt for transcripts of records made before 1922. And here, the, the work of the Irish Record Commission, cumbersome and inefficient as it was, it
1: gave us copies of records, which otherwise we wouldn't have. Mm-hmm. And of course, that's very current now with the the uh, anniversary of 1922, the, yes. I mean, the centenary of 1922, yep. mm-hmm. and the whole thing of trying to reconstitute mm-hmm. what is available in various record repositories, yep. which was what the IGRS was founded for, That's really, right. wasn't it? It was. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um,
0: it's potluck, really. It, you, you you would get researchers in different parts of Ireland who were just fanatical transcribers. And one, well, there were two in particular in County Waterford. One was a district, in, uh, the, the county inspector of the RIC, Jennings. Inspector Jennings, yeah, who used to sit in the record office and make abstracts of wills, among many other things. Um, and when he retired, uh, he bought a house in Eccles Street, close to the public record office, so that he could potter down, transcribe <laughs> wills during the day, and then go back home, and his wife would have the tea on the table, I suppose.
1: <laughs> um,
0: and the other was Edmund Welsh Kelly, who, above all, transcribed census records for County Mm -hmm. Waterford. So we're very lucky. And and South Kilkenny as well. And South Kilkenny, Mm, yes, mm
1: -hmm, where
0: his family were from. Yeah. Um, But you're very dependent on having having had scholars like that in your area to transcribe Mm -hmm, mm
1: -hmm. before the whole thing went up in 1922. Julian, you've been involved in Irish genealogy for over five decades. And there have been huge changes in the whole field in that time in terms of technology, indexation and digitization And obviously there are many good and bad aspects to all of that. Um, what are the good ones, do you think, in your opinion? Well, research has been transformed, obviously, by the advances
0: in technology, particularly the internet. I think one of the big advantages is that some major major sources which were so vast and so hard to access are now available online at the touch of a button i'm thinking particularly of newspapers Mm. the newspaper archive british newspaper archive in particular which enables you thanks to the wonders of word search um to, to, to look for particular names particular places particular events whatever um whereas before that well I remember going to the National Library in the evening and there was a whole row of enormous stands <laughs> with great volumes of newspapers and people poring over them page after page after page. Then the library closed and at the end of it all you had what looked like a snowstorm of bits of paper on the, li- on the floor yes, where yes. The, that the newspapers had deteriorated. Then we had wonderful projects of indexing and um, card indexes and so on. But now all that is superseded by um, online searching. And I think that's,
1: that type of thing is one big advantage. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, I mean, Rosemary Folliot's um, it, it, she, two, two series of yeah. uh, transcriptions. Yes. A, a, and she typed them up as well. I that's mean, that, nice. was, uh, that must have taken a, her forever to do. Colossal work, yeah. Mm-hmm. And now they're online. For everyone to see That's in five good. seconds. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. um, and what about the bad? Um,
0: well, I, I think it's enabled people to um, do perhaps rather superficial research, put it up online. Once it's on the Internet, people assume it has to be correct, and they follow it. And once it's there, it gets copied over and over again and, and, and misunderstood. Um, so I think that's one major disadvantage of the way things have gone. Um, the, also, I feel there isn't the same ex- excitement in genealogy. You know, through all the hard work, all the slog work of going around to chat up cantankerous parish priests so that you could get their signature on a, a letter allowing you to use a mag- m- microfilm in the National Library, um, that was hard work. But um, discovering individual documents and actually holding them in your hand—this was a, a, a great excitement—and seeing it all online and having it so easy in that way um, has—that's uh, that's taken a lot of the, the
1: the excitement out of it, I think. Mm. Yes, I I must say. Uh, finding something after several hours was just fantastic. Yeah. Finding it mm. in five seconds is very nice. Mm. But I think, too, that 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 can lead people who are not au fait with the records, lead them astray, because mm. uh, it, it has to be. And then they put it up on their family tree online. And as mm. you say, then it's copied and copied and copied. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, that I'd agree with you on all of that. Mm. You moved back to Waterford in 1990, isn't that right? Yes. Um, I left school teaching. I was suffering from
0: hypertension. And um, I came back down to to Waterford. Um, And I have to say my involvement with the Irish Genealogical Research Society has diminished since then, simply because I was so far away from Dublin, couldn't get up to to meetings and and, and so on. Um, But I, I worked for... Uh, the Waterford Heritage Genealogical Survey um, which had been set up as part of the Irish Genealogical Project to cover the genealogical records for the diocese of Waterford and this and to carry out professional searches for for clients. Now, I was allocated the Church of Ireland records and I did some searches for um, clients that had applied to us. I also had the job, and it was a very exciting one, of going around and trying to uh, locate Church of Ireland registers hmm. in different parts of the of the diocese mm-hmm. and get permission for us to borrow them, copy them, and return them so that we could put them onto our computer index and have them instantly searchable. And that was fantastic. I found, um, in some cases, Clonmel in particular, the, the group of Clonmel parishes... The rector there, Ian Knox, had kept the registers very closely to hand and he had typed out a lot of them and and he knew them intimately. Um, The records in um, Fidown, Piltown area in South Kilkenny, which covered part of Waterford as well, Mm -hmm. totally different story. They were scattered everywhere. (laughs) Um, The rector told me he'd been to a conference in Ferns, and in the library there, he found a missing register from Waterford. Um, you never knew quite what would turn up <laughs> anywhere. But that, that, that was my other main function in um, Waterford Heritage Survey. And then we were given the task of conserving and cataloguing the library of um, Waterford Church of Ireland Cathedral. And that took me off on a rather different tack. Mm-hmm. And it led to my being employed in the library at University College Cork, doing the same sort of job there on the older printed books. But that was sort of bringing me away from genealogy and all the right. other things. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. And you uh, presented a, a weekly history programme on local radio, and wa- radio in Waterford, uh, WLRFM, W-L- w- mm-hmm. yes, Waterford Local Radio FM.
0: Yeah. Uh, That started in a very casual sort of way. My next-door neighbour at the time, um, he presented a country and western programme in the middle of the night, (laughs) and he thought, I need something to break up all this stuff, (laughs) and a little bit of local history would be useful. And he suggested an on-this-day type programme, just a couple of minutes. So we started recording... And to my astonishment, well, I, I, you know, I thought anyone who's interested in history would be asleep. And anyone who's <laughs> listening to the program won't be interested in history, so I'll get away with it. But it proved immensely popular. Then it was on the breakfast program, then lunchtime. It ended up being broadcast four times a day and running wow. six days a week. Wow. Quite an ordeal to keep it going. Mm-hmm. Something that happened relating to Orteford on this particular day. And we started in March of 1994, and it ran for nearly 19 years. Wow. Gosh. (laughs) Um, It was fun to do, but it was a challenge. But I think while a lot of the research obviously had to be rather superficial, it aroused an interest in local history amongst people who perhaps didn't realize they had any history. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Not just in Waterford itself, but all around the county, people in obscure rural places who suddenly found that they actually did have a history, and um, it, uh, it it really sort. Of, I think it it sparked an interest which wasn't there before and has
1: lasted ever since. Mm. And obviously, it there there was huge. Uh, it was hugely popular because nineteen years. Yeah. Um, And then we produced two volumes based
0: on the On This Day series. We produced, we published 3,000 copies of the first volume. That's sold out. And 2,000 of the second volumes, which is almost sold out. But it it, it was. Mm. And and the the voice, I still meet people who say, oh, I know that voice anyway, (laughs) which is a little bit daunting. You have to be very careful what you say to strangers.
1: (laughs) Well, unfortunately, we, we'll just have to leave it there. I'd love to talk more to you. It's, it's been really enjoyable and it's lovely to see you again, Paul, Julian. Thank you very much. I've enjoyed talking to you and we'll keep in touch. Yes, see absolutely. You again soon. Yeah. Thank you. Great. Well, that's all for this episode of Irish GenPod. I hope you enjoyed it and that you'll join me again next time.
0: Sponsored by Expressway. With My Expressway, free travel pass holders can reserve their seats online at expressway.ie or at our ticket machines in stations.